One of the stories of unhappiness in the Bible is that of Leah. There are many stories of unhappy people in the scriptures, by the way. But the story of Leah, found in chapters 29 and 30 of Genesis. She was the older of two sisters. She was the less attractive of two sisters. And she was the unloved of the two wives. Jacob had come into town and was smitten with her younger sister, Rachel, who is described as lovely in form and beautiful. So much so that he offered, and her dad took him up on the offer, that he would work for him for seven years in order to marry Rachel. After seven years, her father, Laban, tricked Jacob, no doubt with Leah's consent, and put Leah in the wedding bed in the place of Rachel. Jacob was forced to keep Leah as his wife and worked another seven years for her younger, more beautiful sister. By the way, he didn't have to wait seven years for that. He waited a week later, and a week later he married Rachel. So the two sisters, Leah and Rachel, are married to Jacob. But Jacob loves Rachel. I just say culturally, it's hard for us to get our minds around uh, someone being a man being married to two women, uh, let alone two sisters. In Genesis 29, we read in verse number 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah became pregnant, gave birth to a son whom she named Reuben. The footnote in the NIV states, Reuben sounds like the Hebrew, for he has seen my misery. The name means see a son. And Leah said, surely my husband will love me now. Is that not heartbreaking? Then she conceived again and gave birth to another son, whom she named Simeon. Probably means one who hears. And she said, because the Lord has heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. She conceived again and had another son. And she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. She named him Levi. Sounds like the Hebrew word for attached. She conceived again and gave birth to a son. This time I will praise the Lord, she said. And she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. We come to Genesis chapter 30. We find out that Leah was not the only unhappy member of this family. If you look at the first four verses... When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister, that is Leah. So she said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. Jacob became angry with her and said, am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? Then she said, here is Bilhah, my maidservant, sleep with her so that she can bear children for me. And that through her, I too can build a family. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife if you wish, in modern terms, a surrogate. And Jacob slept with her. Just parenthetically, by the way, uh, technology and science does not remove the moral component when it comes to surrogacy. Bilhah conceived and had a son, and Rachel named the child Dan, which means vindicated. God has vindicated me, for he has listened to my plea and given me a son. Bilhah conceived again and had a second son, Rachel named him Naphtali or Naphtali, which means my struggle. Listen to what she says. I have had a great struggle with my sister and I have won. How'd you like to live in that household? Not to be outdone, Leah gives Zilpah her handmaiden to Jacob and she has a son 
Leah gives the son the name Gad, which means good fortune or troop, saying, what good fortune. Then Zilpah had a second son. And this is will be our text for today. Verse 13. Then Leah said, how happy I am. The women will call me happy. So she named him Asher. Asher means happy. In the midst of the story of great unhappiness on every side, we hear for the first time in Scripture someone saying, I am happy. By the way, just to finish the story, Leah would have two more sons, Issachar and Zebulun, and then a daughter, Dinah. Rachel would have two sons of her own, Joseph and Benjamin. These 12 sons of Jacob became the foundation of the 12 tribes of Israel. What I want us to do today and for the next few Sundays is to examine the issue of happiness. To do so as a continuation of our study in the book of Galatians. You might wonder, how does this fit in with what we've been studying? Well, let's connect the dots by way of review. We have looked at truth. We've looked at knowing. We've looked at goodness. And in part, what we've seen is a fragmentation, a shattering of what should be, in fact, a whole. We began by examining the issue of truth. Someone mentioned to me uh, one of the past Sundays that one of the great ironies in Scripture is seen in the scene in which uh, Jesus is standing before Pilate and Pilate asked him, what is truth? Uh, a word, by the way, truth appears 47 times in the Gospel of John. In reality, the truth was standing right in front of him. For Paul and the rest of Scripture, truth is not something impersonal. It is found in Jesus Christ. It is found in the person of Jesus. It is something personal. It finds its measure, its source in God and the gospel. And so as we read several Sundays ago in John chapter 8, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. In this vein, we looked at the place of story in communication, specifically how story is used to communicate the truth. That in scripture we find there is a grand story, a grand narrative from the creation of all things to the renewal of all things. And in the center, the hinge point, if you wish, the center of it is Jesus of Nazareth. Sadly, the stories and the story of Scripture are rejected or ignored, and truth has been reduced, reduced in quotation marks, in my opinion, to propositions, which allows Christians to know a lot about theology and almost nothing about Scripture, to be biblically illiterate. This opens up an entirely new way of understanding what Scripture teaches. Uh, I remember reading several weeks ago, N.T. Wright was talking about the fact that an, uh, there have been significant books that have come out in the last two decades on the Trinity and seeking to recover this doctrine. He said it's really ironic, though, that none of them use Scripture. They all use other theologians. Um, I think truth is to be found in the person of Jesus who is found in Scripture. The modern construction of truth is more interested in the coherence. Does it all fit together? Does it make a strong argument than it does in whether or not it is true or in its goodness? So theology doctrine becomes an academic discipline. And the shift is from formation of changing our lives, of being renewed to the giving of information the shift is from how the teaching of truth should change our lives to how well these truths sort of stand together as a good argument. 
The question would come up then, as we looked at it, how can you know what is true? And we looked at how knowing has changed in the modern age, that now we have sort of an object or observer-object relationship, and relationship in quotation marks. What has emerged is the view that things are objectively true. And within this way of knowing, uh, things that are not objective, you know, things that are sort of subjective, are downgraded to the category of belief. So we know certain things, but then other things we just sort of take by faith. We, we have to believe that these are true. And so if someone doesn't know something, they may say, well, I believe something. And in the church, I think the church has been happy enough to go along with this. In reality, knowing involves relationship. It is not simply the observer and the object. It is, in fact, a dialogue, a conversation that is to go on, a story, if you wish, between what we might call the observer and the object, between the knower and the thing known. I've mentioned this the last two Sundays, I think, that the first temptation, the first sin, was the desire to have knowledge without relationship, to eat from the tree and to know without having to have a relationship with God, to have knowledge without love. So I believe we are to recover the personal in truth and in knowing, and in part to do so by recovering story and relationship. The third thing that we looked at, we looked at last Sunday, was the matter of goodness. Now just briefly, I would mention that goodness is an attribute of God, and it is seen in his creation, which is a revelation of himself. Goodness is not only moral and ethical excellence, it is that, but it also speaks of usefulness and purposefulness. That is, in keeping with one's purpose. This is why one is created. We see goodness in Genesis chapter 1, the week of creation. And we see goodness remaining to a certain degree after the fall. We find that creation is marred, but not abandoned. It is not without value. It is something, in fact, to be redeemed. And goodness is something that is a part of that redemption. And so Paul speaks of goodness as one of the nine fruit of the Spirit. But in the modern, and now in the postmodern world, these three realities, truth, knowing, and goodness, have been redefined. And the result is we have a disconnect. We have gaps between truth and goodness, truth and knowing. It is one of those gaps that leads us to our subject today. As one writer puts it, we find that there is a gap between goodness and happiness. As one author put it, happiness unlinked from goodness and linked to excitement instead has moved in to fill the space. Because we have said that goodness and truth are separated, we find that goodness and happiness are separated, and happiness now simply becomes a matter of fun and excitement and is not connected to goodness at all. It is, in fact, this goodness that has pushed me to examine what the scripture has to say about happiness. It's not a typical topic for sermon in a church like ours. Um, we might, you might wonder if you're in the right church today. Uh, that uh, This is not something that we normally would talk about. As we begin, we should consider how important happiness is. 
Let me just give you, if I was writing a paper, this would be in the bibliography or in the footnote. Uh, two books that have been extremely helpful, if not indispensable, in me uh, studying this. The first is Reordered Love, Reordered Live, Lives, Learning the Deep Meaning of Happiness by David Noggle, who teaches in Texas. And what he does in part is he sees the seven deadly sins as disordered love and leading to unhappiness. So pride, envy, anger, sloth, greed, gluttony, and lust, because these are in fact fake loves. These are disordered loves. And if we get our loves in the right way, then we will in fact be happy. The second book is God and the Art of Happiness by Ellen T. Cherry, who teaches at Princeton. And she examines the church's tradition with regard to happiness. I would mention that her book was written after her beloved husband of 40 years died, what she called an untimely and pointless death. For someone like her to write about happiness, she has my attention. From happy birthday to happy new year and beyond, happiness and being happy is a significant issue. Noggle asserts, if we pay attention to our own lives and observe the lives of others, we will soon discern that a desire for happiness of one kind or another is the conscious, subconscious, or unconscious motivation for just about everything we do. Most of our daily lives and activities are aimed at the goal of experiencing and enhancing some measure of well-being and delight, even if such intentions are in the acknowledged, unacknowledged background of our minds. Augustine wrote, It is the decided opinion of all who use their brains that all people desire to be happy. Just think about it. This is what people desire. To quote Nagel again, though there is significant disagreement on what happiness is and how to get it, there is substantial agreement in recognizing it as the bullseye on the target at which we aim our lives. That's why people live. They want to be happy. And by the way, I don't know how to fit this in, so I'll, say, I'll do it here. I've actually met people, and I don't know if you have, who are happy when they're unhappy. That is, they take delight in being unhappy. Um, it is the, one of the great ironies. It is, I think, because of the fall that we find people taking delight in their unhappiness. I think we can agree at the outset that happiness is a universal quest. But we should consider when and where we are, that the pursuit of happiness is closely associated with the American experience. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is one of the most famous phrases from the Declaration of Independence. It is considered by some as part of one of the most well-crafted, influential sentences in the history of the English language. And so this theme, the pursuit of happiness, has worked its way into our vocabulary, our consciousness, and our lifestyle as Americans. The quest for the happy life seems to be the one thing that all Americans can agree on. We may be divided by religion, by race, by gender, by politics, and so much more, but the pursuit of happiness seems to be the social glue that makes the one out of the many. So happiness or being happy beyond being a universal concern is an American concern. But is it or should it be a Christian concern? As we saw in 
the series on the just war, what defines us, our baptism or our passport. We know that Americans want to be happy. We're Americans, so we get that. But as Christians, are we to desire to be happy? Before we get to that, just sort of a side note here. Those who have studied the matter of happiness in the Western context have noticed how that happiness has actually migrated. It began in what we would call the sphere of religion and philosophy, that this is where happiness was found. And as the modern age began to open up, it shifts to that of the political realm. And that's why we have in the Declaration the statement, the pursuit of happiness. That's the purpose of the government, to help us pursue happiness. Well, in the 20th century, it has shifted once more, and now it goes to the realm of the individual. It's about me. I want to be happy. It's about my happiness. How did this happen? Well, we've seen that modernity meant significant changes. And when the business of knowing changed, that it became the observer-the-object relationship, and the issue of truth became really fuzzy, like we, we don't know that we can know if anything is really true about anything, but about nature and about human beings, then the government said, okay, we will, we will stand here and we will make sure that you all are happy. The government became the guarantor of freedom so that each individual could pursue happiness as he or she saw fit. As a result, happiness became very subjectivized, relativized. Happiness is whatever you want it to be. At least many people see it that way. Now, happiness is a person-relative concept. It's associated with personal choice, agreeable circumstances, and pleasure-giving experiences. As a result, uh, I would say that happiness has sort of denigrated to the level of sort of junk food. It is trivial. It's associated with the ephemeral, the things that are really passing, feelings and the flesh. There has been a backlash against this, by the way. Uh, there are serious people who say, we think that fun has, or happiness has been reduced to fun and something really trivial and superficial. Oh, the chair of the English department at Wake Forest University, Eric G. Wilson, authored a book that was published in 2008, Against Happiness, subtitled In Praise of Melancholy. When Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan turned 50, he was interviewed by Rolling Stone magazine. And the interviewer asked him whether or not he was a happy man. And Noggle writes about this. He said, finding the question a bit jarring, he fell silent for a few moments as he stared at his folded hands. Then drawing on the experience of faith, he offered a trademark response. You know, he said, these are yuppie words, happiness and unhappiness. It's not happiness or unhappiness. It's either blessed or unblessed. This leads us back to the question, is happiness something a Christian is to seek? Is this something as Christians that we can legitimately discuss? One could argue that the church is often seen as being anti-happiness. H.L. Mencken, a bitter anti-Christian individual, put it this way, that the people in the church sometimes seem haunted by the fear that someone somewhere may be happy. 
James K. Smith, on the blurb on the back of Noggle's book, wrote, We Protestants seem to have hang-ups, or tend to have hang-ups about happiness. We know God wants us to be good, but we're not sure that whether he wants us to be happy. Indeed, as I prepared this sermon, I wondered if someone might be wondering about this whole business, whether I knew what I was doing. If I were to preach a series on self-denial, or the redemptive quality of suffering, or the importance of self-sacrifice, we wouldn't necessarily enjoy it, but we'd feel like, oh, that's more appropriate. This is something as Christians that we should talk about, rather than a sermon or a series of sermons on happiness. One of the problems is that we have viewed happiness as postponed. It's something that we're going to get later on. That when we get to heaven, then we will be happy. Uh, Alan Cherry says, Western Christian theology is skittish about temporal happiness, that is, right now, because happiness has been primarily construed in terms of eschatology. That is, the things at the end. Then we will be happy. And so, rather than tying happiness to goodness, interestingly enough, happiness has been tied to hope. We hope we're going to be happy later on. My assumption going in is this, that God wants us to be happy now. That beatitude, the abundant life, joy, and indeed a deep and meaningful notion of the happy life is at the heart of what the Bible teaches. I could read many verses, but let me just read two of you from the Psalms. Psalm 16. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. And in Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, as I said, we must be careful that we do not disconnect goodness and happiness. And in fact, here in Psalm 37, I read you verse 4. Let me read you verse 3, the verse that comes before it. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. I think the, the, the issue that clouds the whole business is that of definition. How do we define happiness? I will borrow from David Nagel here. It is the condition of genuine human fulfillment and flourishing. Rooted in a relationship with God, whose mercy and grace was demonstrated in Christ Jesus. So it is genuine fulfillment and flourishing, but it is to be rooted in a relationship with God, a God who has shown his grace and mercy by sending his son. Noggle goes on to say that this view of happiness is grounded in revealed and knowable truth in scripture. Okay? We can know this. This is true. What can we know? Truth about God, the creation human nature, sin and evil, the need for redemption, and the nature of happiness itself in connection with God and the things we love. Irenaeus said, the glory of God is a person fully alive, flourishing, having an abundant life. What we need, I think, as God's people, is a biblically informed conception of the happy life or happiness. To do this, to understand what the Bible says about happiness, we will follow, and we should, the paradigm of creation, fall, and redemption. 
In creation, we see what was, or we find the deep meaning of happiness as God intended. In the fall, we see what was lost and what took its place. And in redemption, we see the deep meaning of happiness restored. But we also find the already not yet. We talked about this in Galatians. See, the not yet says, well, we can't be happy now. That's for later on. If we only do the already, then I think we, well, I think we become very superficial. It becomes very much about how we feel. Do I feel happy now? Do I feel like I have happiness now? What I'd like today to do, like to do today, is to look at happiness in creation. It makes sense to start at the beginning. It shows us what God intended. We've done this in other series, but let me just sort of backtrack. If we do not start with creation, that is the way God intended things to be, where will we start? Well, generally people start with the fall, because that's where we are. And we can talk at length, and we will, the Lord willing, next Sunday, at how messed up things are, and how unhappy we are. But where do you go from there? How do you go to redemption? Well, if you start here, redemption becomes whatever you want it to be. Happiness becomes whatever you want. But if you start at creation, when you get to redemption, it is the renewing. It's the restoring of what God originally intended. So we need to start here. I remember when we did the series on uh, wealth and poverty, that so many Christian writers who talk about money start here. They start in the fall. And as a result, when they get to redemption, they come up with some rather bizarre ideas, uh, very secular ideas, if not, in fact, Marxist ideas. Because they begin here. We need to start at the beginning. What did God intend when he made the world? It's very tempting, by the way, to start with unhappiness. I mean, we're much more familiar with it. Um, Dare I say it even is more interesting than happiness? I've mentioned before the first sentence in Tolstoy's Anna Karenina, happy families are all alike. You might say in parenthesis, boring. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Something very intriguing because it is so near to us about the concept of being unhappy. The beginning point must be what God intended. The original goodness of all things is what gives birth, if you wish, to happiness. God designed the world with our well-being in mind. God prepared the earth to be a delightful place where we could live, where we could live and flourish and be happy. While the world exists for God's glory, he also created it as a place of blessing for us. In Genesis chapter 1, we find a general account of creation In Genesis chapter 2, we are given a more specific account of the creation of man. And despite the abundance of man's surroundings in Eden, the only thing that wasn't good was that he was alone, his solitude. So God made woman for the sake of companionship. And like the father of the bride, God presented the woman to man, that she might be his wife, that he might be her husband. And this initial encounter inspires the man to be poetic for the very first time. This is now bone of my bones 
and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And we are told a declaration is made of God's intent for marriage, that it was to be a total life union between man and woman and an exclusive and permanent covenantal relationship of faithfulness and love. And here are these two people that God puts together and they are in Eden, a garden of delight. It's called paradise for a reason. And what we find in Eden is a setting for a truly happy life. There are at least six components that we see in this creation account. First of all, we see that spiritually we are made to have union with God in obedience to his will. God told Adam what to do. He's to name the animals. He's to take care of the garden. This is our identity. It is one of the great sadnesses in Genesis chapter 3 that when the Lord comes down in the cool of the day to talk to Adam and Eve, I think we can assume this is not the first time this had happened. This connection is now broken because of sin. Vocationally, we were made to undertake fulfilling work based on the commandment to rule the earth and to cultivate and keep creation, subdue the earth and have dominion. Socially, we are made for human companionship. As I was preparing this, thinking ahead, I thought it's providential, somewhat ironic that we are reading through Ecclesiastes right now because Ecclesiastes, if anything, is a book about unhappiness. But what Dan read to us today is that it is not good to be alone. It's better to have two. We were made for social companionship. Nutritionally, we don't normally think of this, but we were made to partake freely of food and drink. We see that God plants things. He plants fruit-bearing trees. And there are four rivers that run through the Garden of Eden. I think we normally think of the rivers as to give us a geographical location of where Eden is. And we forget, oh, water, yes, to drink. God provides for us. Sabbatically, we were made for rest, to rest and to enjoy God's creation. And this is seen in the fact that the seventh day is sanctified, the seventh day. And then in terms of habitation, we were made to take pleasure in our surroundings and the nature of the locations and places where we live. We see this because this is where God put Adam and Eve, in a beautiful place a lovely place, and there they could learn, they could grow before they would go out into the world and subdue the planet. We may conclude that these six ingredients in God's recipe for the happy life point that they are all supposed to be brought in together. It isn't one here and one there, but the six together. This is how God made us. This is how God made Adam and Eve. Before we move on to the fall, I would point out, as I did last week, the goodness of creation to some degree remains. That even though we're in a fallen world and we have tornadoes and earthquakes and devastation, we have disease, there is still a goodness, there is still a beauty about God's creation. And the goodness of creation also points to God's continuing provision for happiness. What we find in the Old Testament is the word shalom, one that we've looked at many times before. It is human flourishing with God 
the Creator and Redeemer, as the center of our existence. It may surprise some to learn that it is from John Calvin, I always wonder about those Calvinists, um, that we hear that God not only created the world for necessity, for our necessary use, but also for our enjoyment and delight. He wrote, Now if we ponder to what, God, to what end God created food, we shall find he meant not only to provide for necessity, but also for delight and good cheer. Thus the purpose of clothing, apart from necessity, was charm and decency. In grasses, trees, and fruit, apart from their various uses, there is beauty of appearance and pleasantness of odor. In other words, God didn't just hand out vitamin pills, nutritional packs. He, in fact, created beautiful things that we might enjoy. All things don't taste the same. They don't smell the same. They don't look the same. This is goodness and it translates into happiness. Noggle writes, Calvin could hardly contain his excitement over God's goodness manifested to us in physical ways in his world. Calvin writes, Has the Lord clothed the flowers with the great beauty that greets our eyes, the sweetness of smell that is wafted on our nostrils, and yet it be unlawful for our eyes to be affected by that beauty or our sense of smell by the sweetness of that odor? Did he not so distinguish colors as to make some more lovely than others? Did he not endow gold and silver, ivory and marble with a loveliness that renders them more precious than other metals and stones? Did he not, in short, render many things attractive to us apart from their necessary use? I think oftentimes we see God as, well, efficient, very pragmatic. And the fact that he would create things of what one person has called useless beauty, just the wonder of his creation, I think, has escaped us. It is the goodness that translates into happiness. More than a thousand years before John Calvin was Augustine, And he wrote, all that exists is God's gift to man. It's an amazing statement. All that exists is God's gift to man. And it all exists to make God known to man, to make man's life communion with God. It is divine love made food, made life for man. God blesses everything he creates. And in biblical language, that means he makes all creation the sign and means of his presence and wisdom, love and revelation. And then Augustine quotes from the psalm, Psalm 34, verse 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. If God is the proper reference point for all aspects and things in life, then God gives life its true meaning. He gives those things their true meanings. And he puts them in the proper order in our lives. The union of God ourselves and the whole cosmos in love makes up what we call happiness. We've looked at happiness in creation as well as happiness in the fallen world a bit. But now we have to look at the devastation that has resulted from the fall. We'll begin now and continue next Sunday. If everything was so wonderful, what happened? What robbed us of the blessing and peace that God originally intended? What robbed us of happiness? The world is flooded with abnormalities so prevalent that they seem all too normal. Maybe we shouldn't call them abnormal anymore. Idolatry, immorality, falsehood, disease, famine, 
earthquakes, poverty, injustice, greed, and so much more. What happened? One author puts it this way, what happened in Eden may be hard to understand, but it makes everything else understandable. We may not understand all that happened that day, but it does help us understand why we are the way that we are. The sin of Adam and Eve helps us to understand our devastating brokenness. Now I refer to Bob Dylan again. I think I've mentioned this before. I think John has as well in one of his sermons. Broken bottles, broken plates, broken switches, broken gates, broken dishes, broken parts. Streets are filled with broken hearts. Broken words never meant to be spoken. Everything is broken. What happened? The false promise of a greater happiness, a happiness greater than the one that God provided, prompted the revolt. The desire for knowledge without relationship and the desire for happiness apart from the Creator. What a deadly act. Death resulted and the world became a universal cemetery. Adam and Eve were expelled from paradise from Eden into a wilderness-like world, choked with thorns and weeds, smeared with blood, sweat, and tears. You've heard the words before, but listen. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. As a result of rebellion on the part of Adam and Eve, as a result of God's judgment, we have forgotten that the world is God's creation. As a result, we have to sing hymns like, This is my Father's world. We have to be reminded that this is God's world. Sadly, no longer do we seek to love God in all things or to love all things in God. That's why we have to be told to love the Lord our God and to love our neighbors. And yet for all the brokenness, for the alteration of our circumstances and our consciousness, the way we look at the world, we're still keenly interested in being happy. In the city of God, Augustine wrote, For certainly by sinning we lost both piety and happiness. But when we lost happiness, we did not lose the love of it. We still want to be happy. It is part of how God made us. It is part of what is coming in the renewal. Creation, fall, redemption. God wants us to be happy now. We will be blissfully happy in the eternal state. But God begins the project now in our lives. The Lord willing, we will continue this discussion next Sunday when we will look at how the fall and living in a fallen world has affected the matter of happiness. My intent in going through all of this, truth and knowledge, goodness and happiness, and the Lord willing, beauty, is to see that there is to be a wholeness to this that the church has supposed to recover and that we haven't, we, like our brothers and sisters outside, have accepted a very fragmented view of reality, a shattered view of reality. 
In fact, we've been called to be a part of the process of bringing things together. And by God's grace, I trust that that will happen. Let's pray together. Our Father, how quickly we forget that this is your world, that you made it. We are so distracted by the brokenness that oftentimes we fail to see the goodness. We see the ugliness and we fail to see the beauty. And in our unhappiness, we either think that, well, we'll be happy later on in heaven, or we pursue happiness as do our neighbors for something superficial and fleeting. We are your people. You called us. You've called us to be a part of the project of renewal, of redeeming your creation, a creation that is broken but that has value. It's not been abandoned. You've not abandoned us. I pray that by your grace, as we go through this, you would give each of us understanding. And we would not simply hear these things and know them as information, but have conversation and dialogue and put these things into practice in our lives. May your spirit work in each heart. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who has come, has made all of this possible, the the redeeming of all things. I thank you that we could gather on this Sunday, the first day of a new week, to worship you, to begin things right, to give us a right perspective, to make you the center of all things. We thank you for Jack's birthday yesterday. We ask that in a special way you would pour your grace out on him as he grows up. May he be a man of grace, an example to all. Now we ask that your grace and your spirit would go with us as we leave this place. We pray this through Jesus and in his name. Amen. Would you stand, please, and we'll sing the doxology together.